2: Hi, Brian Lehrer here. Up next, Brian Lehrer Weekend, three of our favorite segments from the week packaged together for you to listen to on the weekend. So enjoy, and I'll see you back on the radio Monday at 10 a.m. on WNYC and WNYC.org. Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. I'm so happy to have with us now the journalist, author, and columnist, and podcast host, who you may know best as the former co-host of All Things Considered, Michelle Norris. She is a Washington Post columnist these days, host of the podcast Your Mama's Kitchen, and has a new book out called Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. The book is based on her years of listening to Americans of all kinds in what Michelle has called the Race Card Project. Many of you have heard Race Card Project segments on the station or know that it started with Michelle inviting anyone to submit six words, just six words, with your thoughts, experiences, or observations about race. And maybe you followed her work in the Post or elsewhere. Maybe you know the Race Card Project has won a Peabody Award, among many other accolades. Just a few examples Michelle has highlighted in the past, uh, or I should say in the Washington Post, to get your imagination going before we bring her on. Six words each. Reason I ended a sweet relationship. Too black for black men's love. Urban living has made me racist, took 21 years to be Latina, was considered white until after 9-11, and I'm only Asian when it's convenient. Some examples of the six-word phrases that uh, Michelle has published in the Washington Post and in the book. So let's talk. Michelle, so great to have you on. Congratulations on the book and welcome back to WNYC.
3: Thank you. It's great to be back here with you.
2: Is a good place to start that before the race card project, you never liked hearing people use the expression playing the race card?
3: <laughs> I guess that's a good place to start since I named this work. Uh, I use that title for the name of the work that I do. I, I of, I've i always hated that term. You know, it's when someone accuses you of playing the race card, they're, they're usually asking you to stop talking. It's It's an elegant way to say, please shut up. And it also is a way to avoid what we're really trying to talk about. You know, when someone says you're playing the race card, it's not specific. It's whatever it is, it's fuzzy, and I don't want you to say it anymore. Mm. And um, I used that phrase in this case because I wanted to stoke a conversation. I wanted to ignite a conversation. So uh, Brian, I thought I was being a little bit pithy by turning that phrase on its head And instead of saying, stop talking, I was saying, let's talk.
2: Yeah, and boy, did it work. And to remind people of the origin story of the Race Card Project a little bit, you first started this by leaving postcards in various places for people to find and perhaps fill out in return. And I thought radio is old media. What did you do (laughs) with postcards?
3: Well, people thought I was crazy when I first printed out the postcards. Um, I went to a Kinko's in Washington, D.C., and uh, the, my partner at the Race Card Project, Melissa Baer, who we still work together on this, she designed them. The, the phrase on the front just said, race, your thoughts, six words, please send. My parents were postal workers. My father's gone to glory, but my mother is still with us, and we'll be listening to this later. And so it, maybe it was my way to pay homage to them to support the U.S. Postal Service when everyone else was moving on to snail mail. But it just seemed like something tactile. You know, and and so I left them, as you say, in, in the sugar station at the Starbucks, in the back of the airline seat, you know, where they have the little airline magazine and the sickness bag. I'd leave cards uh-huh. there. Yeah. Uh, I left them on seats whenever I was at book festivals or book talks. And much to my surprise, people filled them out. They went and found a postage stamp. They mailed them to me. Now, most of the submissions come in digitally today because we have a website and the digital form is useful because when they fill out that form, we have a, a a place for them also to give us the backstory behind their six words. Yeah. So we understand a little bit more about why they've chosen those six words. But I still love the postcards.
2: Huh. And we'll get into some of what you get on the website now that people can leave six words but then also expand on them and then also interact with each other. But but I want to admit something. I want to admit a prediction that I would have had about your respondents um, that you say turned out not to be true. My prediction would have been that the people participating at all would tend to be people of color because people of color get their race thrown in their face all the time, and mostly white America, I say this as a white person, in explicit or subtle ways. So they feel in touch with and interested in talking about their experiences with race. White people in general have the luxury, I would put it, of living as the majority, and frankly, have much less interest in talking about race, which they see as either unsettling or somehow hostile, like that phrase playing the race card. But I think your experience tells me my prediction would have been wrong.
3: Well, it was my prediction, too. So you say that your prediction as a white man, my prediction as a woman of color, as a black woman, is that uh, as an African-American, I put the basket on the table, and I thought that people of color would be the ones to fill it up. And in the 14 years that I've been doing this work, for almost all of those years, the majority of the submissions have come from white Americans, which tells me that it's not necessarily that they don't think about race or that they don't want to participate in conversations about race, which we should be honest— Are usually by for or about people of color it tells me that a lot of people have bystander status and in some cases they've chosen that ooh I don't want to talk about that it's dangerous it's a minefield but in some cases they have bystander status and they're looking at the action and wondering when they can get in and when they can have their say and this experience tells me that that a lot of people actually do have something to say and and are looking for a safe space to say it. And we should say that the people who have submitted their stories who are white represent a full spectrum of views and perspectives. I was surprised by the number of white respondents. I was surprised by how many of them identify as conservative, identify as people who don't Necessarily, even want to talk. They'll say, I'm tired of this. I don't want to talk about these things. Why are we talking about race? And they're talking about race. Um, there are some of the same people who would probably be in the camp of people who are fighting against so called CRT, who are saying, Why are we teaching this history to our children? And yet they pulled up to the table with their story, their six words and often a backstory. And so, as a journalist, that has been really useful to me because in most circumstances when we're having a conversation about race, we are usually talking about or talking to people of color. This is the first time that I have participated in an an exercise, in a vertical, about race or identity that had so much buy-in from white America, which makes it easier for me to see a fuller America because Mm -hmm.
2: of it. And along those lines, I'll give you my six words. I thought if I'm having you on and I know what you do, um, I should participate. And maybe what you just said refutes this a little bit too, but um, my six words, and again, in the context of me being white, white male, white privilege, so comfortable, becomes invisible. Hmm. White privilege, so comfortable, becomes invisible. Can Why? We work because
3: backwards. I was. I'm sorry. I know you're asking the questions, but I can't help. No, go. No, yeah, you do you this for a this. living too. <laughs> <laughs> so, if we worked backwards, tell me about the being invisible
2: part. Well, I th- I think that's one of the biggest barriers to equality and coming up with policies that really push equality. People in the majority often don't naturally see themselves as having a particular identity at all, and can say they just see people as people. So for many white people, we have to become awakened, I guess I shouldn't say woke, so I'll say awakened, to the reality of different experiences of race in this country. And I think it has big implications that feed into policy arguments about race-based remedies like affirmative action for centuries of race-based deprivations. It's that white privilege so comfortable becomes invisible. So a lot of white people think, why does it have to inform policy in a specific way? Why does race? Uh, I'm curious for your reaction, and if anything like that has come up a lot.
3: Well, I'm I'm going to focus on the word privilege, because I've learned a lot about this word, word listening to people, and particularly um, white Americans, because people talk about privilege in other parts of the, the world, we should note that we've received submissions from more than 100 countries now. Wow! But the, the language of um, bias is a little bit different in other places. But in America, when you talk about privilege, there are a lot of people who feel um, offended or ostracized by that conversation because they're like, what, what, uh, how am I privileged? You know, I'm a working class person. I have to figure out at the end of the month whether I'm going to buy new shoes for my daughter or put food on the table. Mm -hmm. Am I going to be able to buy medicine or make the mortgage? And I'm privileged. So that word privileged is is very loaded for people. And one of the things that we learned, it's called, the project is called The Race Card Project, but the subtitle of the book is Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Think About Race and Identity. And I started talking about race and identity for, for a reason, because I realized when I widened the aperture a little bit, and started talking about race and identity, more people came into the tent. Mm -hmm. I have been in places where we're doing workshops, or I'm doing a talk, and people stand up, and they will say, you know, I am someone who came from poverty. I am someone who is struggling in some way. Sometimes it's financially. Sometimes it's emotionally. Sometimes it's because of a disability or a different kind of ableism. And they feel like they're not seen and they're not included. And there's no program for them. There's no understanding for them. There's no embrace of their issues in the way that perhaps there is for they perceive this, um, this kind of embrace or interest In helping people of color feel more included, uh, create a sense of belonging for them, and and so when I talk about identity, suddenly people feel like, okay, I don't necessarily see myself as raced, you know, Mm -hmm. in the way that Toni Morrison talked about it, you know, the the way that you are it's laid upon you, Um, in in the way that people of color do, but when you talk about identity, then people are I'm Southern. Um, I'm an athlete. I'm tall. i'm um, I'm older, and I work in tech. And I feel out of sorts because the world is passing me by. Um, everyone is wearing their watches, talking about how many triathlons they've done and how many steps they've logged. And, you know, and I'm at the end of my career, and this is a very uncomfortable place for me to be. So when we started talking about identity, just we we just started to see cards coming in, submissions coming in from lots of different people. The other group, for whom that was very important um, were Latinos, because when we were talking about mm-hmm. race, um, there, th- you know, that didn't necessarily apply to a lot of people because they felt that the door that they would walk through had more to do with culture, had more to do with ethnicity, had more to do with geography. So the other, you know, one of the many lessons I've taken from this mm-hmm. is that. The language that we use, the vernacular of our conversations about race, as we understand it, is probably too pinched. It's too narrow, and we maybe need to think about um, ways to expand that so more people are included, and maybe we can have more have conversations that are fuller and a bit more productive.
2: So, listeners, we can do a few things with you on the phone with Michelle Norris. Um, we can take your six words. With your observations, thoughts or experiences of race, informal submissions to Michelle Norris's race card project, we could call them, and yes, go to her website and um, submit them for real if you want, but your six words, and I know I'm asking you to do something that I didn't give you a heads up about in advance. <laughs> so an, an assignment. <laughs> if you can um, pen them right now, uh, a little little you know. Pop quiz. It's not a quiz. It's just, you know, and it's an invitation, a postcard size invitation. Your six words with your observations, thoughts, or experiences of race. Uh, Or you can ask Michelle Norris any other question about the Race Card Project or anything else you want to say or ask about that or her book, which is called Our Hidden Conversations What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. So call or text us, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, for Michelle Norris, who you know from the Race Card Project, maybe, who you certainly have known as an All Things Considered host um, on the station and elsewhere around the country on NPR. And while calls are coming in, Michelle, I wonder if you would tell the story that you include of the exchange that started on the site around someone's six-word post that read, we aren't all strong black women.
3: That Would came, you tell that story a yes, little bit? Yes, that came from Celeste, um, Dr. Celeste Green. She's We call her one of our Race Card Project kids because she was in college when she submitted her story and was feeling a lot of pressure for a lot of different reasons and sent in those six words because she felt that she was not allowed to be vulnerable, that as a black woman, there was an expectation that she could shoulder the world's problems and that she would soldier on in doing so. She um, is now a doctor, and she applied to law school the first time, uh, didn't get in the first time, got in the second time. And in her application, she wrote an essay about her experience Sending those six words into the world because what happened is all these other – it was on social media and creating a project like this at a moment where, you know, Twitter and Facebook and everything came, came into our lives, you know, allowed this to percolate in interesting ways. And all these people from all over the country, including a few from overseas, were all debating those six words. You know, wait, I thought that was a compliment. I'm always telling, you know, you go, girl. you you Black women just, they have something about them that they just have a a stronger spine about them. And and other black women were saying, oh, wait a minute, we get hurt too. We need to, you know, put our burdens down too. When you say this, it makes us sound like weeds instead of flowers, like you can throw anything at us and we will survive. And she's now, Celeste is now a doctor. She is a practicing OBGYN. Uh-huh. And she says that, this is something that is still evident in the work that she does, noticing in her practice and realizing from a plethora of studies that have been done that black women's pain is not always recognized in the same way. They are less likely to get painkillers. They're less likely to be tended to when um, when they note that something might be going wrong, and that's why we see the kind of maternal mortality rates that we see in the the difference in the maternal mortality rates among women of color. And so she tries to bring this wisdom and to keep having these kind of conversations in her medical practice and at the same time recognizing that as a doctor, as a mother, um, as a, you know the centerpiece of her family, she's now married and has a young son, that she is also trying to figure out how to find balance and still realizing that there is this sort of expectation that's wrapped up in a compliment that winds up feeling like a cement, you know, instead of pearls, it feels a little bit like a cement necklace. You must yeah. always be strong. Yeah. You must always, you know, soldier on. And sometimes, you know, that that you know that saying, "Black don't crack." Well, yeah. it can sometimes crumble, and and people feel like they always have to strut out into the world and be fabulous and be strong and and you know and you can't always right. bring that every day.
2: Yeah, and some of the specific responses that you published in the. Uh, Washington Post essay that you did that's adapted from the book Um, um, isn't strong black when, when people objected for the reasons you were just articulating isn't strong black woman a compliment? Response no it's strong like oxen less than human like saying it doesn't matter how we treat them because they will survive time to stop putting up walls and be vulnerable but then a response wasn't the whole feminist movement about being strong what gives? But then more responses. I feel like I'm forced to be strong, and it makes me sound like a weed, not a flower. And I read through those because it's just such a wonderful example of how you've started conversations on the site, not just declarations. And, and we need so much more of that.
3: I love that, conversations and not just declarations, because so often when we talk about race and identity, it's a conversation that's centered around anthems, and what people are saying as opposed to what they're hearing. And I hope that this project gives people a space to actually listen to someone else and understand life is lived by you know, someone in another zip code, in another realm, with another point
2: of view. Oh, that's so public radio of you. Um, <laughs> Michelle Norris, former ATC host, uh, we're going to continue in a minute. And are you surprised that so many people are writing in and calling in with their six-word phrases about their experiences or observations about race with almost no notice. So we're going to continue with Michelle Norris after a break. Her new book on all of this is called Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. And um, at the end of the conversation, we're going to do a little bit of of an addendum because of the Emmys last night. And I think, Michelle, you know this is going to come. Um, <laughs> Michelle, last year, wrote a column in the Washington Post critical of, I guess, the the biggest winning show last night. And we will find out why. Stay with us. Brian Miller on WNYC with Michelle Norris and her new book, Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. Built out of the Race Card Project, uh Peabody Award winning project that you've probably heard segments about on NPR and that she's been doing on the Race Card Project website, starting with inviting people six words on their experiences, observations, or thoughts about race. And let's hear some. Nate on the Lower East Side, you're on W N Y C. Hi. Oh, I didn't expect to get through so quickly.
1: Normally I'm Alerted to it, Uh, my six words: I became black in New York.
2: You want to expand a little bit?
1: I do. I was waiting to see whether you wanted us to or not. Yeah, when I was a kid uh, back in the uh, late late sixties, early seventies, I lived in upstate New York uh, in the Poughkeepsie area. I was cutting across a lawn uh, of a neighbor, and kids don't know boundaries and. the neighbor's kid yells out, Hey, black boy. And I look at him and I'm upset. I'm upset initially thinking, why is he calling me black? It wasn't about being a boy because I was young. I was a boy. But the thing that really got me was being called black because at the time colored was much more common in the area that I was in. Hmm. I was, and I shouted back and I said, I'm colored. I'm not black. He said, haven't you heard you're black now? Black is
2: beautiful. And it, later on, yes. It's interesting. Nate, I'm going to leave it there so we can get a lot of people on, but that's a really interesting story. We'll give Michelle a, uh, Michelle a chance to comment on it as we go, but let's hear a few. Gardner in Upper Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hello, Gardner. Hello,
1: Brian. I'm Michelle. Hey, yeah. Uh. Six words. So, uh, Uh, minorities are often afraid of me.
2: Are you turning a stereotype on its head?
1: Sort of. I was canvassing for a politician in Patterson, New Jersey, and I was knocking on doors, and people did not want to answer the door because I was white, and somebody told me that I knocked like a policeman or a landlord. And I never realized that people were afraid of me because I was white.
2: Very interesting. All right, we're going to go on. Um, I'm going to let Mary Ellen in Westchester speak for a few people who are calling or writing in with a similar six-word observation. Mary Ellen, you're on WNYC. Hi.
4: Good morning. Hi, and thank you for taking my call. Uh, um, Brian, this actually goes back to, I guess, something that I have felt pretty much my whole life where, most of my adult life anyway, um, but that crystallized for me just about a year ago when you had your program, in fact, almost to the day, um, your guests on your um, MLK day last year. And uh, there was a discussion of, you know, whether, you know, I think particularly with your the rabbi who was on, who talked about uh, whether or not he considered himself white. And to me, sort of an epiphany was that if you're Jewish, um You're not really white. My six words that I said to your screener was Jewish. Now, I I didn't write them down. I should have because now I don't know if I can get down to six. I've got it. I've got it from Um, you
2: if you want me to cite it, but you could do it. Please. Jewish, you only think you're white.
4: Exactly. And um, I'm guessing you grew up among a fair amount of Jews. Uh, Yes. I think in Bayside. In fact, you yes. may have overlapped in high school with one of my cousins. Okay. Um, I grew up just a little bit further East on Long Island, Hempstead, Uniondale area. And I was the only Jew in my class until seventh grade. And it gave me a different perspective that I don't think I fully appreciated until adulthood that, that you're like, and frankly, it's something that as Jews, we need to be aware of, um, that the 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 word white in the United States really means christian it really means christian that is the the sort of the silent implication but a very profound meaning of white
2: and mary ellen i'm going to leave it there so we can get more people on but i hear and I acknowledge that a number of people have written or called in with similar sentiments and certainly we could have a whole conversation about um, being white and Jewish in New York, compared to a lot of other places in the country. There's an aspect of this in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, that has perceptions on both sides. So so I hear it. Maybe we'll bring it up tomorrow with our guest, the prominent rabbi and author, Rabbi Sharon Brous, who's going to be a guest tomorrow. And among other things, she's going to talk about anti-Semitism in the United States and how it's been getting expressed, um, before and after October 7th. Uh, but there's all of that. Let's get one or two more in here. Susan in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hi, Susan, you have six words.
5: I, yes. Um, racism means isolation from the other, which kind of sums up a lot of what the callers have said. And I'm just going to quickly, um, cause I know time is of the essence. Um, in elementary, no, junior high school, um, it was mostly a white school. There were a few blacks bussed in, and I was in the band class, and that exposed me to <clears throat> black kids, and my best friend became, um, who was a young um, <clears throat> young black boy, he, he, he became my best friend um, in, in junior high school. Um, and then later on, I was uh, in a training program. I was the instructor. I was the only white. Um, my my students, who were considered quote unquote educationally disadvantaged, and that's why they were in the training program. And this was in advertising. The um, director and the assistant director were African American, um, and I had to learn. I, everything was reversed. I had to learn how to communicate. And um, it, I, I was hazed. I was given a really hard time. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot in that experience.
2: Susan, thank you so, so much. And finally, a few that are coming in on text message. Um, listener writes, Race is a uniquely American construct. Listener writes, biracial, not really enough of either. Listener writes, they're going by so fast, I can barely keep up with these. (laughs) Um, um, Person with an accent considered inferior. And another one, I'm exhausted of being the other. So uh there you go Michelle a lot of submissions over the last uh 7 minutes or so. Do you want to enter through any of them or just kind of the group?
3: Sure, but can we just say how much people can pack into just six words? Every you know, I hope people who do buy the book will leave it out in places where others will find it and that it will be a conversation starter because the book includes my essays, but also these six word stories. and they they do ignite conversation. they they make you think about things. I mean, um, when Susan was talking uh, uh, about um, racism is isolation from the other, it makes me think of Brian Stevenson's work, where he talks about proximity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the reasons that they created these divisions and they wanted to keep kids away from each other, they didn't want them to dance together, date together, even go to school together, is because I think people knew that once you saw someone, you got to know them, you see their humanity. It's what Michelle Obama says, it's hard to hate up close. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also understand in a reverse situation when suddenly you're the minority, that is an epiphany as well. Um, In... The uh, story, I want to make sure I get the names right here. I took a little notes, if you don't mind. In talking about uh, Mary Ellen, um, talking about Jewish, you only think you're white. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about how whiteness has been, it's it's fairly elastic over time, right? It's meant different things at different periods of time. So you talked... the with her about being Jewish in New York City, if you were Italian in New York City at one point, if you were from um, Eastern Europe, if you were Slavic, if you were Irish in New York City at one point, or really almost anywhere in America, you would have been considered white with an asterisk.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, And some of these things are legislated by individuals. Some of it legislated by the government. If you were from the Middle East, if you were Lebanese, the box that you check on the census is often white, because a decision was made, and there's a real debate now about whether we should have a MENA category, Middle East or North African, because of these these constructs. Um, someone else said race is an American construct. I would push back against that a little bit since we've heard from people all over the world. They might not call it race, but people figure out how to divide themselves in all kinds of ways. Mountain people versus valley people, always around a religion, often around hue, the color of someone's skin around money, around access to water, around all kinds of things. And that's one of the other big lessons for me is that we keep talking about race as something that will one day go away, racism, bias go away. I actually think it just mutates and we have to figure out how to um, create tethers with each other uh, even you know as bias changes over time. Um, Gardner, who said, minorities are often afraid of me Mm. Because he knocks like a police officer or a landlord. Yeah. Um, I would love to put him in conversation with any number of black or brown people who have submitted their six word stories, who say things like, Lady, I don't want your purse. Yeah. Because they walk down the street and someone's always grabbing their purse a little bit closer. Um, or going through a neighborhood and trying to hit that lock on the door, you know, because they see some kids standing on a corner. And these are people of color who feel like everywhere they go, they have to inoculate other people's fears. I wonder if he feels that way.
2: It's why I said to him or asked him if he thought his story was a bit of a role reversal. Yeah, yeah. Um, to wrap this up, and then we'll do the, the Emmy Award uh, <laughs> addendum, you, uh, what's the goal of the project? Is it simply to have a place where many people can write and interact about race, or are you trying to help actually get us to a more equal and maybe less uncomfortable country in this respect? I was struck by the fact that you also wrote about your dad whose patriotism toward a country that didn't love him back you didn't always understand. And I also got a sense that, that you've become maybe a little less optimistic and more disillusioned yourself over time, even while doing this incredibly idealistic thing. So what's the goal?
3: Well, first let me address the the thing about my dad. Um, He was extremely patriotic, flags flying in front of the house, little flags in his rose garden, and I didn't understand it. And I have become very patriotic in my own way. I think there's a lot of flag waving that's done in the country as a way to, um, again, gatekeeping this is our country and not yours, and I believe that everybody who is a citizen of this country should embrace the flag um, and claim it as theirs. Our, our pride and our plunder is in that flag, too. My father fought for this country. Um, my forebear, forebears helped build this country, and so I am not going to concede my claim to this country so i become mm-hmm. um, ever more patriotic in doing this work as i understand america even more better even with its flaws and even with its fissures um, i am <laughs> i'm also more pragmatic not necessarily pessimistic and i'm not you know the race car project will not solve america's problems but it will help you understand the wound it will help you understand the divisions, if you have a chance to listen to each other. And so, yes, I'm trying to create a place for people to listen to each other, but not necessarily to make us more comfortable, because I think we have to learn how to sit in our discomfort. And I think if we're willing to sit in our discomfort, then we can figure out how to work together productively when we don't always agree. And that's perhaps the short-term goal. The long-term goal is something that I started to realize about, you know, seven years ago when, when the numbers really started to pile up in terms of the numbers of submissions we received, is I hope that years from now that storytellers like us, journalists like us, and also anthropologists, sociologists, historians, will be able to look at this archive and understand America during this really interesting period bookended by the presidencies of Barack Obama and Donald Trump, followed by Joe Biden, followed by a global pandemic, followed by the killing of George Floyd, followed by uh ruptures at the border, followed by climate change and economic tumult. And January, un- 6th. and January 6th, let's not forget about that. And understand America, not through the prism of historians, but from w- real source material, from people saying, this is the way I see the world. This is the way the world sees me. This has been my experience. What I wouldn't, what I would give to have something like that when I was doing research on the 1920s, on the 1940s, to be able to understand America in that way. So I hope that long after I'm gone, that this will perhaps be useful to someone in the future who's trying to understand the
2: now. All right. As an addendum to our central conversation about your book today, I want to note the Emmy Awards last night where Succession was, of course, <laughs> one of the big winners and that you wrote a Washington Post column last year called Succession Dulled America to the Poison Seeping into Their Lives. And so for for those of us, and I guess I would have included myself, who might have <laughs> thought it was helping to illuminate the poison seeping into our lives by showing a fictionalized version of this, you know, top 1% family and Rupert Murdoch and family in particular, who it's supposed to be based on in such a damning light. Want to make your case in about 30 seconds because we're over our time.
3: Okay. I, I just, I think it pointed out um, all the things that are are helping to unravel the country. It was a bit to me, I mean, I, and I did watch it and I give them credit. Um, they, they created something that captured the nation's, attention and the zeitgeist but it's a bit like watching a, a house fire on a v- screen when the embers are burning on the sofa that you're sitting in and that's sort of the way it, 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 it felt to me I have and I said it in the column mm-hmm. I have respect for the writers yep. I just have a love of country that made me worried about what they were predicting what they were projecting on screen and it was projecting something that um, was all too real for me to see it as entertainment
2: and I'm going to play one clip of the actor Matthew McFadyen, who won an Emmy last night and a Golden Globe the other week for his portrayal of the character Tom. Who, here he who is won from, it all in the end, you know. Yeah, yeah who became the CEO, right? Yeah. And so here he is from his Golden Globes acceptance speech skewering that character who won the prize.
6: I, uh, I just adored every second
7: playing um, the Weird and Wonderful human grease stain that is Tom um,
6: Tom Wamsgan's CEO, I should say. Uh, God help us.
2: And you know why I played that? Because I think maybe for some listeners who heard the character Tom speak American English in the series perfectly, and then the real-life actor in his actual British voice And you noted in your column the relevance, perhaps, of Succession being mostly a British Mm -hmm. production. Give us just a a, a quick thought on why you think that might have mattered.
3: I think they were holding a mirror up to us. And we thought we were watching the one percenters, but we were really watching ourselves and how we've allowed this to happen in our country and how we've allowed this to exist. The game was on us. The joke was on us.
2: And we leave it there with Michelle Norris. Her new book is Our Hidden Conversations What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. Thank you so, for sharing it so generously with us.
0: I always love talking to you. Thanks so much. WNYC Studios is brought to you by ZBiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with ZBiotics Pre Alcohol Probiotic Drink. ZBiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Z-Biotics before your first drink. Drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off.
2: It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. The future of New York City has been left for dead a number of times now in the last 50 years during the fiscal crisis of the 70s, the crime waves of the 80s, after 9-11 in 2001, and the financial crisis of 2008. And then came the pandemic of the 2020s and a theory from a Columbia University business school professor who's about to be our guest with a theory he framed as the urban doom loop. Urban doom loop. You've probably heard that by now. Other cities have been caught In such loops before, with decline of one sort or another, followed by many people leaving, which depleted the tax base, which hurt city services, which caused more people and businesses to leave, and new people and businesses not to come. An urban doom loop. This one, the theory goes, would be caused by remote work becoming permanent for many people, hurting small businesses near the half-empty office towers, and maybe a commercial real estate crash that could bring down local banks even and further send the city into a doom loop of decline. But more recently, Dr. Doom Loop, if I can call him that, has been singing a more optimistic tune. Not totally, but a couple of years now after he coined the term, things are looking less doomy, even if still kind of loopy, and with even the possibility that the pandemic economy and its long tail could offer the city offer the city new opportunities for growth and renewal. So let's hear his take at whatever level of complexity he sees at this point in 2024. Maybe some of you saw him on 60 Minutes last weekend, too. My guest is Columbia Business School Professor of Finance and Real Estate, Stan Van Niewerberg. Professor Van Nieuwerberg, thanks for coming on with us. Welcome back to WNYC.
5: Thank
6: you, Brian. It's great to be with you.
2: First, how well or badly did I lay out the basic urban doom loop theory? Would you like to add or correct anything there to start out?
6: No, it was excellent. You did a great job.
2: Okay, good. Um, Are there some classic urban doom loop cases that you would cite as cautionary tales, cities in the industrial Midwest or upstate New York or anywhere?
6: Yeah, those are all good examples. Uh, you know, Detroit comes to mind. Also, New York City in the 1970s, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, more generally, you know, cities go through these large transformations. For example, you know, with deindustrialization in the 1950s and 1960s, that took 20 years for the city to recover from that, and then we had 20 or 30 years of a positive spiral, where, interestingly, offices were the solution to our problem.
2: Right, but there are cities that have not come back. Like New York has kept coming back. That I wonder if if they are sort of better examples of the urban doom loop, where it really winds up in a longer term doom.
6: Right. Absolutely. I think sort of some of the cities in the in the Rust Belt come to mind, upstate New York, as you mentioned. Right. Uh, you know, they're in some sense the industrial base left, and 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 those cities never fully recovered. But even in those type of places, you know, there are exceptions. You know, Pittsburgh comes to mind, that sort of reinvented itself on the back of you know, medical device industry and pharmaceutical mm-hmm. industry. So, you know, I think a lot depends on how policymakers respond to these to these shocks.
2: Right, and we'll get to some policy options. But I think one of the things, right off the bat, that New York has going for it that some of those other cities didn't that were really company towns for the one big company or industry that was there. Uh, is that New York's economy is so diversified with a bunch of different major sectors. I mean, we're the number two tech hub behind Silicon Valley. Uh, I think you agree with that, that ranking. Plus, you know, the finance sector, advertising and media, um, education. It's, it's, there are big, big sectors of New York's economy that insulate it to some degree uh, more than, let's say, a Rust Belt City that was a, a company town.
6: That's absolutely right. And I think the, the other thing we have going for ourselves in New York is the fact that, um, you know, a lot of young people want to be here, you know, in part for jobs, but in part because it's a really fun city to live in. right? And and sort of those amenities, these downtown amenities, uh, you know, the whole cultural sector that we have, that's also something quite special. If you compare that with some, you know, traditional central business districts that are very heavily office focused and they're that are deserted at night, you know, that's sort of very different from the way Midtown and downtown Manhattan uh, look and feel.
2: Yeah, which is one of the things that the city did that I know you've pointed to after 9-11 that surprised me at the time, but it turned out to be so successful. Just when you would think that people didn't want to be there, you know, in the shadow of the World Trade Center, death and destruction, um, the city invested a lot of money in building residential uh, spaces, right? And having people want to move there and live there. And that was one of the central keys to the revival of Lower Manhattan after 9-11, yes?
6: Yes. I mean, actually, it started a little bit earlier. Um, you know, all of this sort of came out of the the, the commercial real estate recession of the 1980s, the late 1980s, uh, sort of in, that sort of led into the recession of 1990, 1991. And, you know, sort of starting in 1995, the city put on this this program called 421G, which was essentially a tax subsidy for the conversion of office buildings into residential. And over the next, uh, you know, all the way through 9-11, but all the way until 2006, um, you know, there were about 13,000 new apartments built under this program. So, yes, you're right. This really sort of revitalized downtown and and turned it from a purely office into into a much more mixed office and residential neighborhood.
2: So getting back to the doom loop scenario for New York today, post-pandemic, you know, emergency period uh, into now, it seems to me there are two different doom loop stories that I hear a lot. The effect on delis and restaurants and other small businesses in the business district with fewer people working in the nearby office buildings each day to patronize them, that's bad for those businesses, obviously. But the other one, maybe much more threatening, is about the value of the office buildings themselves with the mortgages that the real estate developers have on those buildings. Is it right to separate those two tracks? And if so, can you describe each in a little more detail?
6: Yeah, I think that's right. So there's sort of a, the, the repercussions of the decline of office values for tax revenues for cities, right? So that's what what I've called the urban doom loop, where you know, when, when the values of these buildings go down, over time, the taxes collected from these commercial properties will go down as well. And for example, in New York City, about 15% of our tax revenue comes from these commercial properties. So if those values, if those buildings lose, let's call it 40 to 50% in value in the long run, then over time, those tax revenues will also go down. 40 or 50 percent. So that's, you know, that's about six billion dollars or seven billion dollars per year in tax revenue uh, that we might be missing out on. And because the city needs to balance its budget, it's going to need to either raise taxes on on other items or it's going to need to cut spending, right? But the annual
2: annual city budget is about 110 billion dollars, right? If you're talking about six or seven billion dollars out of that, that's not nice, but it doesn't sound ruinous.
8: True.
6: I mean, again, seven a 7% deficit is, is a non-trivial deficit to make up, right? You have to remember yes. a lot of our expenses are locked in. You know, a lot of those are wages that are pre-committed, right? So it's never easy to trim 6 or 7% of uh, of costs. In fact, the city has made some cuts that have been already pretty painful, and that's just the very beginning. You know, another way to put that $7 billion number in context, that's sort of roughly the cost of the entire migrant crisis that, that we have. So again, yes. non-trivial um but maybe not ruinous right but I think it's sort of the it's in some sense the starting point because if the result of that is cuts to government services and that makes people leave then you know when there's fewer people here obviously that you know the values of these buildings are going to decline further but we're also going to be missing out on some tax on some sales tax revenue on some income right. tax revenue so that's sort of what sets off that, that that doom loop cycle yeah. right so that's that's point number one and then the second point cycle as you pointed out has to do with with sort of the financial uh, spillovers of of these declines in office values because offices are uh, of mortgages against these offices are important uh, assets on banks balance sheets especially the more local regional banks which you know got in, in some trouble earlier in 2023 right and so basically we've arrived at this situation where the values of these buildings are down uh, the uh, cash flows on these buildings are down and interest rates have roughly doubled, right? So now you have all these office owners that have to refinance their mortgage and essentially they can't because yeah. of these re- of these reasons. And so now banks might, and, and so the, some of these office owners might decide to send the keys back uh, to the banks and then, you know, banks obviously don't want to be sitting on these half empty office buildings and that might lead to fire sales and to further declines on prices and so forth.
2: And In a sort of worst-case scenario, I'm thinking of the 2008 financial crisis, which was essentially a mortgage crisis, so many bad mortgage loans and the way banks felt immune from any risk for those loans. So when the economy changed and many Americans couldn't make their mortgage payments, um, it's not only that the individuals lost their homes, banks started going out of business, and that helped cause the period known as the Great Recession. And again, correct my description of that scenario— If I'm mischaracterizing it, but also is something like that at risk of happening to the banking system here in New York if building owners start walking away from their buildings and defaulting on their mortgages in the way you were just describing?
6: You know, I would say in general, yes, but there's sort of a couple of buts. One is that the commercial real estate sector is not as big as the residential real estate sector, right? So instead of 20 trillion in residential real estate mortgage debt, we have about six trillion in commercial real estate debt. So it's a bit smaller, the problem is a bit more contained. For our our largest, most systemically risky banks, commercial real estate loans are an even smaller fraction. So that's sort of the good news. Um, Now it's sort of these medium-sized banks that are most exposed for them. Commercial real estate could be a much larger share of their their lending, 30, 40, sometimes even more, right? So do I think we might have some medium-sized banks fail in the next couple of years? I do. Uh, you know, some of that is is, is in some sense um, something we can deal with, right? We, you know, in the 1980s, we had 700 thrift institutions fail over the commercial real estate banking crisis. Could we have a few hundred banks fail this time around? I think we could. Um, now, is that necessarily catastrophic for the overall banking system? No, it's not. Because, you know, as long as these banks are not systemically risky, they're small enough, we could deal with that. Sort of you know I think there are darker scenarios where if that were to happen people panic and they start to withdraw their deposits from the banks and you have another run on the banks you know that's sort of a you know a more a, a darker scenario where this could spill over right another risk is that if the economy starts doing worse in the next several years this problem gets gets sort of worse as well but if the economy sort of keeps holding up as well as it has uh, I think this problem might be containable
2: yeah but it sounds like people may want to take this opportunity to remind themselves that FDIC insurance for money that you have in in those insured sort of regular banks is good up to $250,000 before you keep any more money than that in there for people who have that much money. Yes?
6: Absolutely. Very important to remember.
2: Um, So listeners, everything you always wanted to ask or say about urban doom loop theory and why it might or might not apply to New York City in the post-pandemic emergency period. But you never had Dr. Stan Van Niewerberg from Columbia's Business School, who coined the term urban doom loop, over for dinner to ask, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, call or text. So we've been describing the urban doom loop scenario that you had originally. But you've been in the news lately for being more optimistic. Some of you may have heard your interview with Arun Venigapal on the station or read the Gothamist version. But I see as early as last February, almost a full year ago now, you were quoted in the New York Times saying New York City could improve its outlook greatly with the right policies. And um, you cited that example that I touched on before, of post 9-11, the city spending a lot on housing in lower Manhattan to great effect. What do you see as potentially productive policies now?
6: Right. So I think there's sort of uh, three prongs uh, here, right? One is we need to, I mean, that's sort of at, at its core, we have too much office. You know, my view is that remote work is here to stay. Uh, our office sector is built for a world pre-remote work. So there's essentially too much uh, office space. We could argue whether we have 100 million square feet too much or 30 million or 300 million. I think we can sort of discuss that. But at the the core, we need to repurpose some of that office, right? So some of it uh, is converting that office into residential. We have a housing crisis at the same time. Too little housing, certainly too little affordable housing. And you know, we've done some research that suggests that in New York City, something like 25% of buildings are potentially convertible from offices to to residential. It's not easy. It's not cheap. Uh, there's regulatory changes that are necessary, right? So, what are the policies that that, that, that could be that should be um, you know pursued here? Well, one part is rezoning part of Midtown for residential where residential is currently not allowed. Another part is to make sure that there is, as of right, conversion to residential use for office buildings that are built before 1990. Right now, that's not the case. Office buildings have to be much older than that to be allowed to be allowed to convert. Uh, a third plan would be to allow for more different types of housing. You know, think of co-living spaces. You know, we used to call these single room occupancy uh, long, way way back when. Uh, but I think there's sort of a modern version of that that would make for a great use of of some of our office space. And then the truth is, some of these conversions are are, are basically sort of not going to happen without some uh, some policy, right? Some 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 property tax abatements, for example. So something like that 421G program uh, that we had downtown in the late 1990s that we were discussing earlier uh, would be would be really important to have uh, going forward.
2: Rod, you one, know, I, in, oh, go ahead. do you want to finish your thought before I take a call? You can. One last
6: thing I would say is sort of make sure that sort of the city apparatus works well and that mid-level government workers are really empowered to sort of make those approvals so that the process, the actual approval process can be streamlined.
2: Rodwan in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hello.
9: Hi, Brian. Hi. Good morning. Uh, so, yeah, from my own experience, I'm a restaurant owner. I, I, had, I opened a, a restaurant in 2003. And then, I, uh, like you said, the city keeps evolving. And this is the, the great thing about New York City. That's why it keeps surviving. And people have to understand that and adapt, and I adapted myself because I went from a sit-down restaurant with a bar to a takeout restaurant, and uh, because the behavior of the consumer has also changed. In the oh. past, people used to go to a restaurant for an entertainment for two hours of entertainment, and they didn't have the iPhone, they didn't have these nice TVs and all these unlimited shows, HBO Max, etc, you know, mm-hmm. Netflix yeah. Now the entertainment moves from the, ha- from the restaurant to the house or to the apartment and they are happy just ordering food. That, of course, has an uh, effect on the brick and mortars with uh, the big staff that now they're not doing much inside the restaurant and more to you know, takeout. Business. So you
2: converted and more so- to a takeout business.
9: I did, and I still have another restaurant with, but I see the same thing. Uh, Not only this, this is just one of the many reasons. Also, I noticed many big companies, many companies now, they're refusing to deliver to Manhattan, right? And they say, no, I don't need to waste time in the traffic. I get tickets. Uh, We lost uh, lanes to buses and we lost lanes to bicycles. So they really don't want to come to Manhattan. That alone also adds to the cost of businesses because now you're only stuck with big companies like Cisco, et cetera. And those prices are very high. So there's so much going on that, For
2: that are driving
9: yeah. businesses out of New York City, from, especially from Manhattan.
2: Really, really and interesting, Radwan. I'm, I'm going to leave it there to get some other folks on. Uh, but a lot of insight from a restaurant owner there. Yes, Professor?
6: I agree. I mean, businesses have to keep adapting to, to sort of the new environment.
2: Does, to some of what he was saying, does the remote work economy even itself out in a certain respect? Like, if people aren't spending money at delis and restaurants near their office buildings as much, are they spending it at delis and restaurants near where they live? And maybe that way, there are even more businesses doing well. They're just more dispersed geographically around the city and around the region, rather than concentrated, you know, in Manhattan below Sixtieth Street.
6: That's right. That's exactly what we see. We see sort of retail moving to where the people are. Right. So, I'll give you one example: Chipotle opened hundreds of suburban locations in the last couple of years, just ah. sort of follow, following where the people went.
2: Chipotle, yeah. Um, And Kathy Wild, who represents major businesses in New York City, was quoted in that Times article last February that you were also quoted in, saying, historically, blight precedes resurgence in New York City. I was interested in that turn of phrase. Blight precedes resurgence in New York City. So if Midtown is suffering or let's say if real estate values are suffering, um, could it be that a bit of real estate crash is exactly what the city needs to bring down rents and home selling prices to make the city affordable again for the next generation of creatives and immigrants seeking opportunity who historically have moved here and kept making New York a cultural and business hub?
6: Well, it's certainly the case that lower office values would open up all sorts of alternative use for those properties, right? So, you know, at thousand dollars per square foot it's really hard to imagine doing anything else but charge a lot of office rent for these buildings but at 200 dollars per foot there's lots of other things you could do with these buildings potentially so i certainly believe in that creative uh, destruction aspect of this of this crisis now so far rents haven't fallen at all in fact rents have been rising throughout apartment rents have been rising throughout this period right so housing has certainly not crashed uh, Uh, in in Manhattan so far. So there hasn't been little, little relief. Uh, But I do think that if we were to convert a substantial share of these offices to residential, you know, more supply would help to sort of put a lid on uh, on these rent increases that we've experienced.
2: As a professor of real estate, how do you explain the fact that rents have kept rising, even as presumably there's less demand to live close to the central business district?
6: Well, part of it is that um, there is more demand in the pandemic. Everybody wanted more space, right? So people wanted a home office. People didn't want to double up for health reasons and so forth. So we had this major increase in in the demand for space per person, mm-hmm. and and that has pushed up you know prices and rents, right? So that is, I think, the first, the most important factor at play here over this last few periods. Uh, you know, the other thing is that a lot of young people did come back to the city in 2021. 2022, so there has been sort of strong demand, especially for smaller, for smaller units. I think sort of the uh, at the higher end of the market and, and, and sort of the family size apartments that segment of the residential market has struggled uh, in the last in the last year or so.
2: Yeah, the generational aspect of this is is really important, right? I mean, as I move around Manhattan and when I'm you know in the business district and um, places like that, the it seems to me young New York is here and not young New York is going out and doing things. Um, young New York is regenerating the city in a way that uh, defies the urban doom loop scenario to some degree. And it's much more older generations who are retreating.
6: True. I mean, You know, we have to remember, you know, New York City has always been a city of young people. There have always been sort of as long over the last several decades, we've always had young people moving in and older people moving out. That has always been the case, right? So here's a a remarkable statistic for you. You could, you know, look at the people that were here 20 years ago and ask, you know, how many of these people are still here? And the answer is about 10%.
2: So,
6: about 10% <laughs> wow. of people who moved here 20 years ago are still here. So, this, it's always been the case. Now, what happened in the pandemic is that more people moved out, more of that 30 to 40 year old crowd moved out and didn't come back. You know, we still had a lot of young people moving in. We still have a lot of young people moving in today. So, the other point to make is that those people, on average, you know, make less money, pay less taxes, you know, have, you know, smaller, smaller apartment buildings. So sort of for the overall economic well-being of the city, we need those, you know, slightly older middle class households to pay their taxes, right?
2: New York is like this huge um, vacuum cleaner and centrifuge contraption, right? It sucks people in, and then it spits people out absolutely uh, but over decades mike on staten island you're on wnyc hi mike
7: yes good morning brian good morning professor uh, a concern i have uh, regarding the city and uh, property values and so forth is uh, the effect of climate change specifically on insurers property insurers uh, down in uh, in uh, uh, louisiana texas florida and big chunks of california The property insurance market is abandoning those markets. And this may be the first sign that America's property insurance market is beginning to collapse. And if insurers stop insuring, then banks won't lend. And if banks won't lend, then property values are likely to erode and then eventually crater. And if that happens, you're likely to see our economy reverse into one of uh, recession, even depression. And most important of all, if that happens, then that will cut off, that will dry up the finance necessary to fund things like uh, wind farms, solar farms, building electric vehicle factories. In other words, we won't be able to fight climate change anymore. Yes, that's
2: the climate change doom loop. In fact, we're looking to do a segment next week specifically on changes in the insurance markets. Right now. Uh, But, Professor, I know you talk about sustainability as part of the opportunity to avoid the worst uh, urban doom loop scenarios. So how does that intersect with what the caller Mike is talking about?
6: You know, these are important issues. Um, You know, close to home, we have local law 97, right, which basically kicked in in on January 1st and which uh, essentially is gonna impose taxes for buildings that are not environmentally friendly. And so, you know, on the one hand, you could say for office buildings, that's sort of the final nail in the coffin of some of these class B and class C defunct uh, office buildings. Uh, on the other hand you could say well you know we really need to start get going on on sort of um you know improving the energy efficiency of our built environment after all the built environment is responsible for 30 percent of all greenhouse gas emissions in uh, in the world so you know i think the the issue of of property insurance is sort of slightly different but i agree that's sort of where climate change is going to be felt the first and the most is and most directly and it's already happening the cost of commercial real estate property insurance has already doubled last year alone in places like Florida. Homeowner insurance has doubled in the last five years in places like Florida and 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 you know that's Florida, but at the end of the day a lot of these insurance companies are national and so you know there there are limits to how much costs they can pass through to their policyholders in Florida. So what happens is the New York policyholders end up bearing some of the cost for that. Right, because they'll basically charge us more to recuperate their 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 lack of being able to charge more in Florida. So this 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 is being felt here, uh, and you know climate change you know is 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 increasing in importance. And if that market you know the color is right, if that homeowner insurance insurance market were to collapse, it would be a really problematic for values. You know I don't think the government will let that happen. I think in Florida already there's been a, a Florida state government bailout essentially of the homeowner insurance uh, sector. Hmm. And I suspect that we would get something like that nationally if it were to come to it.
2: We're just about out of time. And Mike, thank you for your call from Staten Island. Um, There there are two, if we had a whole other segment, we could devote the whole thing to these two questions I'm going to ask you on your way out the door, but do your best. One, how do you think the migrant surge affects the doom loop scenario long term we know there are resettlement costs in the short term um, that are closing libraries and other things but maybe lots of young migrants seeking a better life here is a good thing for the city's economy in the longer term and how do you see congestion pricing intersecting with commercial real estate valuations right in the same central business district that you know um, is is that that the the congestion pricing tax is trying to keep people out of the central business district, but you're worried that too many people are away already working from home?
6: Yeah, uh, two good questions. I would say, you know, in the migrant crisis, I do think that in the long run, sort of a, 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 a an influx of young, competent uh, workers will, will sort of benefit the economy. Um, i would say on the congestion pricing you know we really needed to find a financial solution for our transit system which had a deep hole and new york city doesn't function without a good public transit system and so congestion pricing if that can be sort of the the funding for our transit system you know i think that's really really important uh you know maybe it'll pull some more people in who don't want to commute because the cost of commuting has gone up now with congestion pricing maybe they'll come back and and rent an apartment downtown you know maybe it'll uh, also allow for um, you know, more biking and so forth. So I could imagine this being potentially a positive for the quality of life inside New York City.
2: Columbia Business School professor of finance and real estate, Stan Van Niewerberg, most well-known for coining the phrase urban doom loop, which I think you can tell from this conversation has its limits and its potential uh, upsides or ways to avoid the worst of the doom loop that he first imagined a couple of years ago when, um, when this scenario first occurred to him. So thank you for having this kind of levels of complexity conversation with me and our callers. I really appreciated it.
6: Thank you, Brian. It was a pleasure.
2: Brian Lehrer on WNYC. More in a minute. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. And for the last 15 minutes of our show, rats in your cars. Ew, What? Yeah, rats can be found in almost every environment on Earth. They are among the most successful mammals in the world, and their thriving population here in New York City has been a frequent topic for Mayor Eric Adams, who makes, uh, no, uh, who does not disguise his hatred and revulsion for rats. Their will to survive, though, sometimes takes them from the streets into homes, workplaces, and yes, even your car. So for our last few minutes today, we're going to dwell on that last one. Some recent headlines tell the story. Maybe you've seen this um, from Anna Timms in The Guardian. Help, a rat ate my car, and it's costing me thousands. And from Ginger Adams-Otis in The Wall Street Journal, a New York professor wages epic battle against rats attacking his car. And I'm sure some of you have your own stories to tell about the shock and horror of opening up the hood of your car to find a rat, or even a rat's nest. So what makes a car so hospitable to the ubiquitous quitter? Well, joining me now, Jason Munchie-South, urban ecologist and professor of biology at Fordham. We'll also talk a little bit about a guest essay he wrote in August in the New York Times under the headline, I've studied New York City rodents for 12 years, the enemy is us. Professor Munchie-South, welcome to WNYC. Glad to have
8: you with us. Uh, Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
2: And listeners, who has a story about this to share? With the low winter temperatures now and the recent long overdue snowfall, did anybody listening open up the hood of your car just within the last few days to find a rat's nest for the first time, or maybe more than the first time? 212-433-WNYC. If you have a rats in your car story or a rats in your car question, 212 433 9692 call or text. Professor, you want to start by sharing a be- bit about your specific scholarly interest in rats?
8: Uh, sure. I'm, I'm generally interested in how wildlife manages to survive and sometimes even thrive in highly urbanized environments like New York City. And uh, traditionally, my research group has studied wild animals like coyotes, salamanders, native rodents that live in city parks like in the forest. Um, But I found over the years that what people really wanted to know about is uh, what rats are doing in New York City. And so back in about 2012, I decided I should start studying rats as well, even though they're not what we typically think of as wildlife, more of a, a pest. But it turns out they're actually quite a fascinating species that's, you know, exquisitely adapted to live with humans in urban spaces like New York.
2: I will report that eight people instantly called in when I offered that invitation. We'll get to a few of those phone calls in a minute. But what is it about cars that makes them hospitable to rats?
8: Well, we have over 2 million cars registered in New York City now, and that's an increased since COVID, of course. And then you have all these people that drive in as well. And most of these cars are stationary in the park, not driving around the vast majority of time. Uh, and rats are very curious and they like to explore their environment. They're very capable of using a lot of different places for nesting and, and hanging out, um, sewers, subway, tunnels, they can burrow into soil. And they'll just hop up t- underneath a car and climb into the engine block and and hang out in there because it's a warm space sheltered from the wind. If the car's not being driven around, it's, it's quite safe. Um, I've actually had this happen to me. I lived in Jackson Heights for over a decade parked my car in an alley behind some row houses. And there was a rat infestation back there at one point, and I'd see the rats running out from underneath my car, and then found them, you know, they, they had just created a little nest right on top of the engine block with, like, little bits of food and things left over. Um, so these are just nice, safe places for them when we have all these cars just sitting around.
2: I think Josh in Harlem uh, has a theory about something under the hood that makes it even more hospitable. Josh, you're on WNYC. Hello.
8: Hi. Uh, Thank you, Professor, for raising the issue. Um, I've had a couple of times had to bring a car in for a wiring system completely replaced because I was told by the mechanic a few years ago American cars started replacing the insulation in their wiring with a soy-based insulation and that the rats just love it. They eat it up like candy. And I have the chewed-up wiring to prove it. Uh, It costs thousands of dollars.
2: Thank you. Professor, you've heard that one before?
8: I have heard that. And it's, it's absolutely true that uh, rats love gnawing on things like wires. They'll also gnaw on rubber and plastic parts inside of cars. And part of this is just because they, um, they gnaw constantly. It's actually the name rodent is derived from a Latin verb meaning to gnaw. They have very sharp incisors and it's kind of how they explore the world. Um, they smell things and they gnaw on them to figure out what's going on. And, you know, this story has been around for quite a while that perhaps we changed the plastics that were being used in car wiring. And that's why we started to see rats chewing on wires. Nobody's, like, actually tested that in a controlled setting to see if it's true, but um, it wouldn't surprise me. And there does seem to have been an increase in uh, rat damage to cars. And once they get in there and start chewing on wires, it'd be very hard to diagnose exactly where they've interfered with the electrical system, and it can be quite Uh expensive even just to figure it out, um, what's happened.
2: And and we have another caller. I'm not going to take another caller saying the same thing as the first caller, but just to acknowledge that at least one other person is calling in to also say it's because of soybean oil in the wiring, or at least in part. Howard in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hi,
1: Howard. I just got my—hi there, Brian. I just got my car back from the mechanic— after several thousand dollars worth of parts and labor were put in to repair rotent damage. Several thousand and, uh, dollars. What several they, thousand dollars.
2: What did they, they shoot Can up? Almost,
1: uh, so many wires, whether well, they, they shredded the air cleaner. I mean, huh. it, looked, it looked like a, a party and, and just shredded so many wires. I mean, I, I'm getting a copy of the parts list uh, tomorrow, but it's, uh, you know, a couple of pages of, of, of wiring. And,
2: uh, Howard, I'm sorry that happened. Again, thank you. Did they, the you yeah. Did they give you any tips? Did they give you any tips for prevention?
1: No, Nope. I garaged my car. A musician who I play with suggested that uh, peppermint oil. He had had the same problem in his car. He said peppermint oil. He was told he's tried that for we'll keep huh. the rats away. Don't know if it works or not.
2: Sorry that happened to you, but thank you for reporting it. So people know, um, and Professor, I know you're not in the business of rat abatement, but any idea how to make cars even a little bit less hospitable to rats?
8: Well, nobody's really figured this out. You know, people have tried peppermint oil and a bunch of other substances that are supposed to deter rats, but um, with enough rats around, it only takes one to get in there and not care that much about the peppermint and we'll start chewing on things. Really, you know, when I had my own issue with rats in the car engine block, it was only after the rat infestation was dealt with um, which was due to garbage cans not being secured in the alley in the back. Um, and so, you know, once that was done and there was some poison applied, the rats disappeared and that was that. Um, in terms of actually keeping them out of a car, I think that's going to be quite difficult if you're parking on the street or any open area in New York and there are rats around. Um, these, these chemicals just don't seem to stop them consistently.
2: Here is Parrish in Astoria, who's a service manager at an auto shop who might have some advice. Parrish, thank you for calling in. You're on WNYC.
10: Hey, Brian. How's it going?
2: Good. What you got? Are you there? Yeah. Can you hear me?
10: Uh, Well, yeah, I can hear you. Um, I've definitely seen my fair share of, like, rodent damage due, you know, obviously what's been, you know, spoken about um the two main things i can you know basically tell people is that obviously if you have a vehicle that you don't use a lot that's obviously something that'll really kind of like encourage them to not only go into your car but keep coming back um there are actually products like i know you spoke about peppermint oil but they actually do make packets now that you can actually just purchase and if you can have those in your like engine bay and a couple of like strategic places it'll keep them from I mean, anything is like anything that is a uh, deterrent to help. Uh-huh. You know, the other thing I can tell you is is that if you have had rats in like around your car or what have you, they always come back to places that it seems like they always come back to places like that. Obviously, they know. So like if you open your hood and see like rat droppings or like food wrappers or things like that, that obviously they they've been there. And it's like, oh, well, this is a this is a, a safe space for us, you know. So if mm-hmm. you have something like that, I really recommend that you go get your vehicle washed, like under the hood, get a pressure wash at like a detail shop or something of that nature. You have to do like, these things. So like obviously nothing is 100 percent. But you, if you do these things, it will mitigate your problem. Yeah.
2: Really good tips. Thank you so much. And here's Bob in Park Slope, who says he's a journalist who covers cars. Bob, you're on WNYC. Hi.
1: Hi, there's a solution to this problem, and it sounds like it came from a cartoon. Honda developed a tape, it's almost like a duct tape, that's impregnated with cayenne pepper. And you wrap it around the wiring in your car's engine, and it makes it unappealing to rodents. And when you buy the roll of tape from Honda, it has this little cartoon of a mouse making like a yuck face. It's hilarious, but it works
2: cayenne pepper. Bob, thank you very much. Uh, so professor, any reaction to either of those callers, uh, from the industry one way or another with, with tips or the, 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 you know, the idea of rats liking their familiar territory?
8: I think, uh, all those comments were, um, right on point, you know, rats are creatures of routine and they occupy pretty small areas and they will just keep coming back to a car that's just sitting there and is a nice spot for them. You know, as for the, the various chemicals, I think they can work, but you're going to have to be very careful if you really want to stop them from chewing on the wires about keeping sure that those are applied and so forth. Cayenne pepper or any sort of hot chili is probably one of the better ones, um, you know, because mammals are very, mammals like rats are very sensitive to that. And, and rats have not only good taste, but also a very strong nose. So that would be very irritating to them. But again, you're going to have to really apply that uh, over all the wiring and so forth. or They'll find some, some area where they can do damage.
2: And a listener texts this question, are rats put off by the smell of diesel fuel? Any idea?
8: That I don't know about. I'm sure there are a lot of, of, you know, chemicals and smells and fumes and things that are irritating to rats. But, you know, there's so many of them. And if they're competing for food, you know, it's not none of these things are going to consistently deter them, I think, if they really want to access something like a car.
2: Listener text: I had a mechanic tell me to use powdered detergent. Another one texts, my daughter's car was invaded by rats in Brooklyn, and although they didn't chew any wires, it smelled so horrible. I, it needed to be professionally cleaned, uh, so the stories keep coming in. And, uh, and I guess we should say that it isn't just rats that can take refuge in the inner machinery of parked cars. Many small animals do, right? Squirrels, raccoons, people have found cats, Um, so I don't know if they do as much damage. Do you,
8: uh, I know squirrels can get in there and chew on things In other parts of the country. Rabbits have been reported as doing a lot of damage. I think your cats and raccoons, you know, those will be more in cars that are really semi abandoned and just sitting there for a long time. And they'll just be using it as shelter. Um, they won't probably won't be chewing on the car as much, maybe to gain access, but they're not is driven to gnaw like rats are but they will definitely make a mess in there and you don't want them inside
2: let me sneak um zef in brooklyn in here who i think had a face-to-face encounter with a rat in their car zef we have 20 seconds for you
8: hi uh at the gas station we pulled up and my mother got out of the car opened the glove box and a rat just looked up and said why are you disturbing my home and then my mother jumped out and the car started to roll (laughs) and the rat did too
2: there you go well there's the kicker quote-unquote in the segment in our last like 45 seconds professor shifting gears slightly pun intended you wrote a guest essay in the times about how in order to to decrease the rat population generally in the city we need to change our own behavior what's the headline
8: Yeah, the number one thing New Yorkers can do to reduce rats is just not give them so much food, you know, don't litter on the street, don't throw trash on the subway tracks, don't add more garbage to the top of an already overflowing garbage can on the street, and uh, just try to reduce your food waste overall, so we have these good pilot programs like municipal food composting, the city is trialing better rat-resistant containers rather than just throwing bags of garbage out on the street. That's really the solution. It's the only thing that's going to work in the long term. We can poison rats and reduce their numbers a little bit locally, but you know, it's not going to be a long-term solution.
7: Jason
2: Munchie South, urban ecologist and professor of biology at Fordham. Happy motoring. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Brian Lehrer Weekend. We're back on the radio Monday morning at 10 a.m. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Brian Lehrer or Facebook.com slash Brian Lehrer WNYC where there's always a conversation 24-7.